panel. Uh, I'm Martha Lear of the Freedom to Write Committee of American Pen, which sponsors this event. And it represents the considerable efforts of my colleagues, H.B. Gilmore, Vicki Goldberg, Eileen Lottman, and Faith Sale, chair of the Freedom to Write Committee, and our Penn staff, including Karen Kennerly, our executive director, Pamela Pierce, Siobhan Dowd, and Lamia Mata. Uh, much of the work American Pen does addresses the freedom of writers abroad, wherever it's threatened or limited by imprisonment or censorship or other means of coercion. This event explores freedom of speech here at home, where it may be curtailed by subtler means, and, uh, and the pressure does seem to be growing. A quick statistical reflection of that. Uh, in 1991, according to the American Library Association, there were 512 challenges to library books reported, that is, demands that they be removed from library shelves, and those are just the official reported instances, 512. In 1992, there were 653 challenges, which is an increase of 28%, and as of last February 15th, just uh, barely into the new year, six weeks into the new year, 81 challenges already had been reported. Uh, that, that issue, the attempted censorship of books, is of course one that never goes away. But beyond that, we focus each year on the First Amendment issues that have been most controversial and fractious in the year past. And so last year, the subject was government funding in the arts. And this year, clearly the most visible and, and agonizingly difficult issues have to do with political correctness and so-called hate speech. One current example from a context that is, I suppose, uh, at least as American as apple pie, um, the managing partner of the Cincinnati Reds, Marge Schott, as, as one would have to be living on a desert island not to know, uh, was suspended from baseball for a year for calling some of her black players million-dollar niggers and her business associates money-grubbing Jews. Uh, she received, shortly after it was announced that she had been suspended, a bouquet of flowers on a funeral stand bearing the message, in memory of the First Amendment. Where does one stand on that and why? Many of us who were First Amendment absolutists one and two decades ago and, and felt that we were unshakably firm in our beliefs seem now to be burdened by the weight of our own ambivalences and uncertainties. The head of the Anti-Defamation League reporting that the number of anti-Semitic incidents dropped by 8% last year but rose by 12% on college campuses across the country said that the balance between free speech and group rights has become, quote, fuzzy, unquote. We hope to try to unfuzz that balance at least somewhat. Perhaps we'll fuzz it more. We'll find out. Uh, let me introduce very briefly the people who are going to help us do it. We lost one and won one, as it turned out. We learned just yesterday that Congressman Barney Frank could not be with us, uh, but that Dr. Calvin O. Butts could. Dr. Butts 
here immediately to my right, uh, is pastor of the Abyssinian Baptist Church. He holds a degree in philosophy from Morehouse College, a Master of Divinity degree from Union Theological Seminary, and a Doctor of Ministry degree in Church and Public Policy from Drew University. And he's taught urban affairs at City College. Francis Frankie Fitzgerald, a fellow member of the Penn Executive Board, won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award with her first book, The Memorable, Wonderful Fire in the Lake. She is also the author of America Revisit Revisited and Cities on a Hill and contributes to many of the country's outstanding periodicals. <coughs> Matt Hentoff at the end of this table to my right uh, might be called, I suppose, Mr. First Amendment if he has ever gotten off the dime of absolutism on the first, I haven't heard of it. Uh, he's written perhaps as extensively as anyone about the First Amendment. He's a staff writer for the Village Voice and the New Yorker. He's a columnist for the Washington Post and the author of 12 books, most recently, Free Speech for Me But Not for Thee, which could be the title of tonight's event. Peggy Noonan at the far right there, was a speechwriter for President Ronald Reagan from 1984 to 86, an experience out of which emerged her hugely successful memoir, What I Saw at the Revolution. And anyone who read that book has to be looking forward to the book she's working on now, which is untitled and which she holds a little close to the vest, but she described it to me as a book about living in New York. Morley Safer, to Peggy's left, correspondent and co-editor of 60 Minutes since yes. 1970, Always. and before that, the CBS London Bureau Chief covering all of Europe and Africa and the Middle East, is also the author of the recent best-selling Flashbacks on Returning to Vietnam. Over the years, he has won a mere nine Emmy Awards, three Overseas Press Club Awards, and two George Foster Peabody Awards, and that's probably just for openers. Nadine Strassen, in the blue, is a professor of law at New York Law School, and I don't know whether it's good form to address this fact, but I think it's wonderful. She is the first woman, and at age 40, the youngest person to serve as president of the American Civil Liberties Union. In 1991, she was listed in the National Law Review as one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America. Professor Kendall Thomas, a professor of law at Columbia University, has written extensively on topics such as race, gender, and multiculturalism. He's the chair of the jurisprudence section of the Association of American Law Schools and a board member of the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And finally, Kathleen Sullivan, Kathleen M. Sullivan, professor of law at Harvard Law School, author of many, many <coughs> articles on constitutional issues, <coughs> and author of a forthcoming book to be published by Norton titled Art on Trial, which is about the controversy surrounding the National Endowment for the Arts and government funding of the arts. 
was our distinguished moderator last year. She'll be our moderator tonight, and we hope that she'll be our moderator forever. <laughs> uh, after the panel discussion, there will be a short question period, questions from the floor, and we do ask that your questions be short, if not necessarily sweet. And now, Professor Sullivan. Welcome to Utopia City. The school board of Utopia City has just decided to adopt a new textbook for the elementary schools in its district. The textbook is called The Rainbow People. In this textbook, children are taught the lesson that all races, all genders, all national origin groups, all religions should live together in harmony like the colors of the rainbow. And in this textbook, the lesson is taught that all sexual lifestyles, even homosexual lifestyles, are just as good as any other. Now, Reverend Butts, you are the chancellor of the schools in Utopia City and you have a problem. Uh, your problem is that a group of citizens, hardworking, tax-paying citizens, are not happy with the textbook and the lessons it will teach their children, who after all are required to go to school. The leader of this group of citizens, because of her articulate, passionate, public performances in the past, is you, Ms. Noonan. <laughs> and your constituents... Your she seated me on the far right. Did you notice that? <laughs> your constituents have asked you to persuade Chancellor Butts to stop this textbook from going into classrooms where your children will be exposed to lessons you deeply and conscientiously believe will warp their moral and spiritual lives. Why don't you try to persuade him not to do it? Let's hear how you try. Do I represent the parents group? You do. Okay. Do I have uh, like 80% of the people of Utopia City behind me? No. Tell me my facts. I'll tell you your facts. You've got 35% of the people of Utopia City adamantly behind you. You think there are others out there who sympathize but your group consists of about 35% of the people of Utopia City, so he thinks he's got the majority on his side. You've got an uphill battle. Try to persuade him not to put that textbook in the room. Let me tell you one more thing about the textbook. It was written by Francis Fitzgerald. <laughs> and therefore, not surprisingly, it is a prize-winning, critically acclaimed, <laughs> literarily excellent textbook, all right? So he's gonna call her in to sit by his side as you come in on behalf of the parents group and try to persuade author Fitzgerald and Chancellor Butts not to let that textbook into the schools. Go to it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm really glad I drew this straw. Um, I have a question first. Uh, I guess I need to, to know the answer from, from Reverend Butts. Um, what what grades, what age group is going to read this marvelous multicultural uh, book? Who's it aimed at? 
I understand it is aimed at grade school children somewhere between grades two and seven. Okay, so grades two to seven, that's kids aged about seven to 14 or so, right? Right. Well, so to begin with, this doesn't sound terribly age appropriate to me for seven-year-old kids. Um, I have a child who is almost six, and, and it is very hard to teach him um, to be tolerant or approving of various ways or lifestyles because he doesn't even know the ways and lifestyles exist. So maybe from the beginning, uh, because he is a child, he is a little kid. Um, so maybe from the beginning, my point of view as, as a uh, parent and a representative of 35% of, of the folks in town would be to say, um, you can probably begin with some sort of compromise. And maybe a compromise would be, let's start to seriously consider having this book for kids age 12 and up. Could you live with that? No, I, simply because uh, children ages, um, well, from grades two to, f to seven are introduced already to other kinds of, uh, and I suppose you're objecting to the lifestyles that are presented in this book. Yeah, what are you so concerned about that you want to pull this book out of the classroom? What do you mean not appropriate for their age? Well, little kids who are six and seven don't know the facts of life. Uh, that's the sex parts that you object to. Well, I think that's what you meant by lifestyle, am I correct? Uh, by lifestyles, but what we're talking about tolerance and a broader understanding of the world in which we live. So if a child uh, in the second grade can learn about uh, Tom, Dick, and Jane, and uh, parenthetically, I may be dating myself, huh? <laughs> Tom, Tom, Dick, and Jane, and Sally, uh, Tom, and Sally, you know, and uh, uh, their parents, and I don't even know what their parents' names are. Then, uh, and uh, that has generally been a heterosexual relationship. But uh, they don't know it's a heterosexual relationship. They don't know what heterosexuality is. But they They're can children. look and see that it's a man and a woman, and that helps to set their understanding of what heterosexualism is. Let's hear from the author. Let's hear a defense of this book. You were commissioned to write this book to fulfill what the chancellor told you was his desires to teach civics to these children. Tolerance, tolerance and mutual harmony, like the colors of the rainbow. Can you persuade these parents they're wrong about your book? They want to take your book out of the classrooms. That's going to really hurt the book's ability to persuade anybody. Can you persuade her the other way? First of all, I have to say that as a textbook writer, I'm a hack. Um, I am fulfilling uh, the, the desires of others. Uh, and I think that uh, I, I will certainly defend this book of mine because uh, I wrote it and I, I uh, uh, would have uh, uh, given it to someone else if I didn't believe in it. But nonetheless, um, I have to say that this book of uh, my textbook is not like the other books that I write. Uh, because it is, uh, it is to order and it is for a captive audience. Um, that doesn't which mean makes you wanna, it, you, you're not running away I'm from the I'm going to defend the contents of this All right. book, but I'm, I'm, I'm uh, saying that my status as a writer is, uh, of a textbook is different from my status as a, a, a writer of other books. This was a commissioned ideology that you had. <laughs> Absolutely, but, he, uh, but uh, even if it weren't, uh, nonetheless, um, there is a captive audience involved. Now, now, 
you were limited in what you could say here. Does that mean that Chancellor Butts censored you? <coughs> when, when he said, no, I want you to write it this way, more tolerance, more rainbow, is that censorship? Uh, well, he, cer he certainly, um, I probably wouldn't be exactly, he'd probably be the State uh, Commission on Textbooks, something like that. Uh, he might be almost a passive um, recipient of this book. Um, but let's say it was he, uh, just for to make it concrete, because it's school authorities, um, uh, and of course the publishers are a part of this. Here's your chapter. Situation. We're sending it back. It isn't tolerant enough. Rewrite it. I'm going to rewrite it for tolerance. I'm going to rewrite it for tolerance. Absolutely. Keep the commission coming in. That's right, because right. um, that's my job as a textbook writer. Essentially, I'm writing it to order, and uh, it's the school system that's responsible for what's in there. Okay, so you're running away from this book as fast as you can go. No, I'm not. I'm not running away from the content, but it's Ms. only Noonan my personal Ms. Noonan is feeling opinion. very good over here. She thinks even the author isn't going to defend the book. Now, say a little bit about in its favor, even though you were commissioned to write it. Do you think it should go into the schools? You did all this work. Up. I believe that this. I believe in the content of this book, even though it was written to order, and um, even though my status is different. I believe in this book, and I, I believe in it in the sense that that um, it does not teach sex, this book. Uh, it, it teaches um, that there are alternate kinds of families, which uh, surely there are, and surely uh, the children in the school district will have some experience of willy-nilly. Um, uh, there are, are uh, to deny it is simply to deny reality that the children themselves uh, can see all around them. So Ms. Noonan, you and your group want to censor this book that just portrays lifestyles and reality. Oh, by the way, is that what you're trying to do? Are you trying to censor this book by getting it out of the classroom? Well, that's not the way we see it. How um, do you see it? We think this is a, a silly and insipid piece of work. And that, in fact, <laughs> and that in fact our uh, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh graders She's not Me. an outraged mother. She's an offended member of the Junior League. Oh. You've got to get steam going after somebody like this who, who's affronting you this way. And you and your, your fellow ladies would be out with your bandanas picketing the school by now. Mr. Well, Safer? I don't know if we'd be uh, out there, Mr. my Safer? fellow ladies with bandanas. I didn't mean insipid, I meant real garbage. <laughs> okay? All right? Are you telling us you don't want it to, you don't want to pay for it with your tax dollars? Is that well, the we, I, of course we don't, but you know, I, I mean, there's a lot of things you don't want to pay for with your tax dollars that you, you wind up paying for, and most people don't grouse about it too much, but you know, I've noticed that in the school, that is getting this book. The reading scores are down, the math scores are down, uh, the kids are shooting at each other in the halls. We've got some real problems, and you people are off on some little PC tangent here with this little book. No, actually, actually, we're trying to portray uh, life as it is. One of the reasons why maybe the reading scores are down and people are shooting each other in the hallways is because folks have been lying to them about other things all along trying to paint a Pollyanna picture of an America or a city that really isn't true. Utopia is not utopia. Oh, no in kid in any school mind. in New York thinks that, that this is Pollyanna or utopia. No kid in the city of New York thinks that in the schools here. They'd, they, uh, it'd be cute. It'd be almost sweet if they had those illusions. But that's they true, don't, but we you all see don't the books that they read 
paints a picture of a utopia, of a Pollyanna, of a Dick and a Jane rolling a wheel and a little dog chasing it down the street. And the dog doesn't look anything like that damn terrier. It's a pit bull. <laughs> and so, I, I, I mean, I, look, look, you parents don't know what you're talking about. Part of the reason is that you're, 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 you're self-righteous and you're riding on some moral high horse. And what we've got That's to do what is we deal with it. And you're not going to keep the truth from the children. I mean, you, you're trying to cut off this beautiful author's work. And uh, not only did we commission it, but uh, she agreed to do it because she believed it was right. She had the right to turn it down. Is he elected by the people? No, he's appointed by the mayor. Oh, I could tell. And the mayor is Mr. Safer. Mayor Safer. Uh, Mr. Safer, you got a mayor Safer, man. Mayor Safer, you got a problem on your hands. You've got one side saying it's got the right view of utopia, the other side saying it's got the right view of utopia. Both sides claim they've got the only right view of utopia. And he's going to put that book in the schools unless she stops him. What are you going to do? She comes to you next. You didn't get anywhere with the chancellor. He's elected. Try him. I, uh, uh, are you talking or am I talking? <laughs> no, I think you are. Well, <clears throat> it would be easier for me to calm you down if you're angrier. <laughs> I'm working on okay. it. I'm, he's helping. Uh, well, what I would tell you is, is, uh, is precisely the same thing every mayor of every city says. Is, Don't you worry. <laughs> we'll take care of it. Oh, good. Are we'll you on our side? This. No, I can't say that I am. This is a diverse city. Yeah. We have a lot of, of children in this town that have to be educated. They come from backgrounds not as fortunate mm -hmm. as yours and your children's. <clears throat> and at this, and we understand how concerned you are about maintaining educational values and, mm -hmm. and raising test scores and all of that. But our city schools and the final analysis must reflect the nature, texture, and color of the city. Oh, so are you on our side or no? <laughs> <laughs> By next November, I will be sort of on your side. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Am I supposed to be a real mayor, right? You're, you're the real mayor. I want you to stay that way. Uh, Ms. Noonan has not gotten anywhere with Chancellor Butts and has not gotten anywhere with Mayor Safer. The book is going into the schools, and Ms. Noonan, your group's anger is rising. So you decide to carry out a little protest of your own, okay? Mm -hmm. You go out and you buy up some copies of the book. You raise funds in the kitty, and you go out and you buy up some copies of the Rainbow People. And you go to the fire marshal, who's rather liberal because he's appointed by Mayor Safer. Right? Are uh, you going to make us burn books? <laughs> this is what she's going to do. This is always what liberals do. Right. Ready to roll? Okay, let's go. You got your permit. You own the books. All right? You go out into the center of the city plaza with lots of advertising, and you put the rainbow people in, in a big pile, douse it with gasoline, and you get ready to set it on fire. Okay. Give us the speech. Okay. Oh, Why are you doing yes. this? All Why right. are you doing so, this? Why right. are you burning books in the city plaza? Professor Kennedy, mm -hmm. first of all, 
you know, we are, like all Americans, all Americans are, are, um, are very sophisticated. Some of us are sophisticated beyond our intelligence. We are certainly <laughs> sophisticated enough to know that the last thing you would do to change anybody's mind on this issue is hold a bonfire and burn books because Channel 4 will show all of you goony people burning books and then they'll cut to old archive photos of Hitler burning <laughs> books. The point will have been made. We will have been undermined. We look like big jerks who want to censor nice people. So that, of course, is not what we would do. What we would do is call a really talented local reporter at Channel 4 and say, we got a major gripe, we got a major problem with this butts guy, we got a major problem with this woman writing this ridiculous book. We are rising up, we think we have a totally legitimate case, so could you come over here with a crew and we'll do some interviews? That's what we would do. That's what you would do. But as that's a what of, Americans would do. As a member as a member of the as a member of this citizens group, which is now called the Anti-Rainbow Coalition, ARC for short. <laughs> we're, not, we're not happy with your sophisticated strategy. Oh, we're not. Your, your skill with the press. We want a real street fighter. We call Matt Hentoff. <laughs> Mr. Hentoff, yeah. hi. I'm hi. from, from ARC, the Anti-Rainbow <laughs> Coalition. We read your column all the time. In, 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 in the Village Voice. We don't read the rest of it, I was but we read say, the I was going to say, read the rest of it. Uh, uh, now, Mr. Hentoff, we just had this Ms. Noonan help us out, and she wanted to just, you know, play softball. She wanted to go speak to the chancellor, speak to the mayor, bring in the press. We want to burn this book. We hate this book. This book stands for everything that is un-American. This book says we can't live in our own neighborhoods with our own people, our own kind, our own religion. This book says that we have to tolerate lifestyles we think are sinful. We don't want to talk to reporters. We want to burn this book in City Plaza. Come and help us. Are we allowed to do that? Oh, I think you're allowed to do that because um, just as you're allowed to burn the American flag, it's, uh, you're, it's a symbolic act of protest. But I think if you're going to do that, you ought to preface it maybe with a quote from Justice William Brennan and also a quote from John Stuart Mill that when you turn your children over to the state, that doesn't mean that you turn over their power, the state's power, to decide what their moral views or their views on sex should be. In other words, I think a certain amount of... A certain amount of conversation is useful. If you just burn the book, even though it's a symbolic act, it won't be seen as such. All right, so you can give that speech at the bonfire. You can talk for a while before you sure. light the torch, right? Sure. All right, so, so give us the speech. The speech would be... Why are we burning these books today? Those people who are burning the books... By the way, it would help a lot if I had read the text, but never mind. Uh, <laughs> those people who are burning the books feel, as one of them said very feelingly, that a single parent, and he said, I am raising two boys, eight and six, and when I delivered them to the school system, I did not give the school system the power to tell them what is sexually right or wrong. That's what these people believe. <laughs> you may consider them bigots, or even worse, Catholics, but there is a matter of conscience here. And it's a problem because if there are 35%, let's say, who don't want to use the book, then the question of giving them an alternate book, a reader, I guess it would be, uh, would cost the school system some money. But there ought to be some way of allowing parents a question of conscience. 
in matters like this. I see. You're saying it's not a question of Ms. Fitzgerald's free speech rights to publish her book. It's a matter of your parents' free speech and free conscience rights to get rid of that book. There's free speech rights on both sides. No, what I'm, no? Saying, what I'm saying is, first of all, Ms. Fitzgerald has obviously every right to publish the book and even to counter the attempts to censor it by the, by, by the chancellor. Uh, that's one thing. The book still goes into the schools for those parents who do not object to it and many of whom really want it. But there are, there are free speech rights or free conscience rights on the other side. But Nat, you're Ms. such a big children's rights advocate. Why do we keep hearing about the parents, the parents, the parents? The kids are saying, we love this book. We want to read it. What about second their rights? Minute, second grade kids are saying, we love this book. A parent, a parent was saying in, in this group. Well, at what age do you start defending oh, you know, students' the, the, rights? The, the, no, I'm talking about comprehension. Uh, a parent has a, 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 second, a second grade kid, and she says to that kid, kissing is sex. And that's all they know about sex. Now, if, you're gonna, if the book is ex more explicit than I've heard so far, then maybe it would work, though I doubt it with the 35% of the parents. What I'm saying is, this is a lot more complicated than who has the right. Both sides have rights here. And whether there's any way of, 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 of getting those rights in some kind of t coalition or, or compromise, I don't know. But it's not so simple as to say it's pure censorship to say we don't want that book in the second grade. They can't, they can't burn that book, though. They can't. Why no, not? No, no. That's, uh, that's we, I mean, there's no such thing, really, as freedom of speech. You have liberties regarding speech, but you can't do anything you want to do in America. They and if they burn book. that book in front of the Board of Ed, we're going to lock them up, Hentoff and all of his parents. Can, they, can, can, they, burn, can they burn the American flag in front of the Board of Ed? No, not, 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 not in terms of uh, what, 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 what I'm thinking. In terms of what? There are two Supreme Court decisions that say they can. Well, you might want to change the court. No, we're going to lock them up anyway. <laughs> what? Because you Tessa, can't have people out of control. This is control fire. This is under permit for controlled barbecues. You know right? how you set this panel okay. up now. You know All this right. is awfully difficult. What's the, <laughs> what's, <laughs> Chancellor Butts, what's the crime? What's the crime these people are liable for? They're destroying their own property. It may be dumb, but no. why is it a crime? No, no, no. They're destroying not their own property. I had them buy it. They went out and bought some copies. Actually, Ms. Fitzgerald is selling more copies now as a result of this action. I see, well. Now, what, now, Ms. Strassen, as a parent, it sounded like you're kind of sympathetic to the book. But Mr. Hentoff and his group, ARC, have just come to you in your capacity as head of the ACLU, and they come in to settle this dispute. They come in and they say, we have a First Amendment right to burn the books, don't we, as long as we bought them? What's yes, the answer? That you certainly do. Why? Burning books, isn't that a symbol of everything against freedom of speech? It depends who is burning the books. Obviously, the Hitler example, which Ms. Noonan mentioned, is the government burning books that it does not approve of and therefore is withdrawing from the people the choice to read the book. Here we have, paradoxically, uh, people are expressing and exercising their freedom of speech by burning their own books. They, the book burning is itself their expression of their views of antipathy toward the book, so it is protected. Ms. Noonan, are you 
persuaded that maybe the book burning is a better idea for getting this across than you thought initially? No, I think it is very bad public relations, but I certainly think that, that it is a, a free speech expression and it's not a problem for me in, in that way. Okay. Now, let's try some other tactics. I'm, I'm this person for Mark. We haven't been able to talk the chancellor out of it. We haven't been able to talk the mayor out of it. And actually, our book burning, for all that we had a right to do it, turned out to be bad public relations. Ms. Noonan was right. So we still haven't gotten our message across to the community, and we're looking for other ways to do it. We citizens in the Anti-Rainbow Coalition have an idea. There's a big parade coming up. <laughs> it's the annual Rainbow People Parade, celebrated every March around the beginning of spring. Now, it hasn't been around for as long as some other parades, but the custom at the Rainbow People Parade is for people of the rainbow to march in floats and troops and choruses of their own uh, interest group. So we have racial groups, we have interracial groups, we have multiracial groups, we have homosexual groups, we have bisexual groups. The parade is led off by the gay men's chorus leading up front singing. And people of the anti-rainbow coalition say, what better place to get our point across than by putting our own exhibition, our own float, the anti-rainbow coalition float, <laughs> right in the middle of the rainbow people parade, right? Now, the rainbow people parade has never had a group like this in the parade before. In fact, the rainbow people do not like what the anti-rainbow coalition want to say in the parade. The anti-rainbow coalition wants to march behind the gay men's chorus saying, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And family values are the only values. So it's going to create a little dissonance with the message of the parade, which is about harmony. This message is about the right to live apart, not the obligation to live together. So, Mr. Thomas, you are the Grand Marshal of the Rainbow People's Parade. You have been for years because of your eminent contributions to harmony in the city and harmony among groups. You are, in some ways, the exemplar of what Rainbow is all about. The Anti-Rainbow Coalition comes to you. I'm its leader, and I say, Mr. Thomas, you proclaim to embrace people of all kinds. Here we are. We don't like your message, but we want you to embrace us. Let us into your parade. Let us have our float that proclaims that homosexuality is a sin. It's evil. Let us have our message to in your parade. Will you let us in? Well, in the interest of fleshing out this fiction, let me ask, um, is my parade a private parade? Well, what is a parade? I mean, it's on Fifth Avenue. It's on a city street. There are police officers arming the side of the street to keep the crowds under control, and there are city sanitation workers that clean up after the parade. In fact, that costs taxpayers is there a money. City, is there a city license for the parade? Is there a city license? Absolutely. You get a city license every year, it's no problem, because Mayor Safer is very favorable to your cause. It's have the anti-rainbow anti curriculum people sought uh, permit to stage their own parade? No, they don't want to stage their own parade. They had a book burning and nobody came. <laughs> they, want to come, they want to poach on your parade. Well, 
as, as the Grand Marshal of the parade, I think I would begin uh, by trying to reason uh, with my fellow citizen. Ah, uh, yeah, they've right. put Ms. Noonan back in charge here because they oh, thought good. she had a good idea after all. Try to reason with her. Talk well, her Well, I would her point out uh, to Ms. Noonan that Utopia City, which happens to have a, a newspaper called the Daily News, uh, has recently uh, um, been exposed to the fact that there's an epidemic of violence against uh, gay men and lesbians. That's uh, the relevant group, I take it. That um, in the Utopia Daily News, um, there was a story recently about a homeless man, um, gay man, who had his skull crushed by three men who beat him unconscious with two-by-fours and screamed anti-gay epithets. That a motorist jumped out of his car and uh, started to beat senseless, senseless a woman whom he thought was a lesbian, all the while screaming anti-lesbian epithets. Uh, that the very fabric of the city uh, has uh, been ruptured by a pattern of violence directed uh, at gay men and lesbians. That the book, um, of which I've only seen the galleys, um, is targeted toward an audience of public school children between the ages of 7 and 14. Uh, that some of these children, the 14-year-olds, in two years will belong to that population, young men between the ages of 16 and 24, who are most responsible for these acts of violence against gay men and lesbians. So why? Uh, and that the presence, uh, to my way of thinking, since this is my parade, I don't want her to rain on. And the presence in my parade of a group uh, who, a group that is committed to fostering and furthering an ideology which leads to violence against gay and lesbian city, citizens of utopia is um, not a proposition I'm willing to entertain. Ms. Noonan, can you talk him out wow. of his position? Oh, I don't know if I can talk him out of it, but you know, you do. It, it is a very public parade. We're closing off Fifth Avenue here. This is a parade that is a city parade with cops, with a lot of public expenditure. We're not violent people, we're against violence, and we will put up a sign on the back of our float that says, violence is a terrible thing. We're not there to be violent, but we are there to, to express our First Amendment rights and our right to say as citizens of this city, which is paying the huge cost of this parade, uh, uh, we wanna say we disagree with you guys and we have beliefs and these are those. Why can't we come? Why are you keeping us out? Because you can go down to City Hall and get a permit to march. Well, um, we want to be in yours. Parade. We want to share. The, you know, a lot of people go to these parades. A lot of people can go to your parade, and the people who go to your parade can see our signs and our language and our point of view. So why can't we have that? Because my expression of my First Amendment beliefs ought not be compromised by your asserted right to express your beliefs. Oh, gosh, I don't think we're compromising your beliefs. We feel you're compromising our beliefs. Look, this is the mayor's parade. It's, it's my yeah. town. Go to the it's mayor. <laughs> yeah, but all right, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> I'm taking another look at that permit. Mm. <laughs> mayor, you have to speak and into I, the microphone. And I've got a great idea. 
no banners in this parade. <laughs> this is we, no one's political agenda, no individual group within the rainbow, or no, no um, outside groups who may want to be part of the rainbow. Mayor may Saker? May, uh, may express their own political agenda in this parade. This is a celebration of our differences, and, and we don't have to label them in the process. Before, Can I be in the parade? You, before you offer this, I want you to call your lawyer, please. <laughs> uh, City, Council, City Corporation Council Strassen is going to give you an opinion on whether you can <coughs> forbid all banners in the parade without violating the First Amendment. What do you say, Council? No. No, no, no. Uh, that is uh, a deprivation of the free speech rights of the organization that is sponsoring the parade, uh, either to forbid them to um, purvey their messages in the way they choose, which is through banners, or to try to force them to uh, alter that message through the participation of others, such as the ARC group. And we'll take the same position when ARC comes to us for its parade permit. Um, we won't uh, deny them the right to parade under banners, and we won't force on them members of no, the you're rainbow my people. What do you mean, we? <laughs> so, well, you know, I, I, I want to remind you, uh, I was by your side, Mr. Mayor, when you took the oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States when you were sworn in. <laughs> so how about it, Mr. Grand Marshal? Are you going to let them in or not? Is the answer no? The short answer or the long answer? The short answer, <laughs> the short answer is no. We missed a, a step, though, in this process. We yeah. had something in Utopia that I was instrumental in uh, <laughs> creating <laughs> called uh, the City Human Rights Commission. And before we make a decision, this, these, your people, I know, because you have one smart person among you, has said, let's go to the Human Rights Commission. Chancellor Butts has just been appointed head of the Human Rights Commission. <laughs> Ms. Noonan, go to Commissioner Butts and try to persuade him that you ought to be allowed into the parade. Okay, you know all the facts. Look, it's a city parade. This is a public parade. We want to be part of it. No one has given me any good reason why we can't be part of it. We're not going to be violent. We're not going to be rude. We have a float. It's a large float with a mother and an apple pie. <laughs> okay? There are some slogans. You may not like our slogans, but they are not obscene slogans. Um, um, and you know what? We are willing to buy, I, I think it costs a little space in the parade to get our float in. We're willing to pay any price. Um, we very much want to be part of this. We are taxpayers. We have First Amendment rights, and we want in. Well, Mr. Chancellor, uh, I gather I'm going to be in on this conversation. Absolutely. And I think I'd have to say to you that uh, however innocent, uh, indeed uh, pure, uh, the intentions of Ms. Noonan and Ark, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that the points of view she aims to express legitimize violence against a substantial segment of the populace of Utopia City. Uh, the government cannot be in the business of legitimizing violence by a group of citizens um, toward other citizens. We and don't. I would appeal to you in the name of full citizenship um, that you not force me to let these people march in that parade. Mr. Thomas, in the name of full citizenship, 
and respecting the human rights of everyone who lives in this city, you have to let them march. We have a responsibility to protect those who participate and those who watch the parade from violence. So therefore, I'm sure the mayor will have a full complement of police there <coughs> to ward off any violence. But I cannot, as the director of human rights in this city, allow you to prevent, in a very public parade, the uh, parents' coalition from marching. To do that would be an intense violation of their human rights. And um, if you persist in this matter, I will have to advise the mayor to lift your permit. Seems to me the Human Rights Commission needs a, a short course in the First Amendment because Professor Thomas is quite right. Once it is a city license that allows the parade to go on, that's where the city's power stops. The city has no right to tell somebody under freedom of assembly in the First Amendment whom he or she can assemble with. It's as basic and simple as that. On the other hand, as for banners or posters that advocate or seem to advocate violence, that's a First Amendment protection, protected uh, device as well. Unless the violence is imminent, unless you're saying beat up people right then and there, and there are people there to do the beating up. So Mr. Hentoff, you say that Mr. Thomas is right that he can exclude ARC from the parade, right. that his right to speak on behalf of tolerance and harmony and the rainbow will be impaired if ARC's right to speak is allowed. So what's ARC supposed to do? Get a permit from the uh, <coughs> affable mayor for its own parade. Go have its own parade. Sure. What if nobody comes? That, nobody can do anything about that. What? But I would assume that with all of the tension and, and, and coverage of this, some people would come if only to be nasty. Yes. Well, I thought, you know, here, let me just tell you the way ARC sees this. Mm -hmm. ARC feels that the only way it can get its message across is to go to the groups that are most likely to oppose it. No good preaching to the converted. If they stay in their own neighborhoods and preach to the converted, they're not going to be doing anything with their free speech rights. They'll be spinning their wheels in the sand. They well, want to go to the people who disagree with well, them and have their shot in court with them. Similarly, if, let's say, NARAL or NAW wanted to have a pro-choice parade and Operation Rescue said, we insist on being part of it, the pro-choice people would have every right under the freedom of assembly to say, go and have your own parade. Now, why should the city aid and abet Mr. Thomas's message over ARC's message with all that money. Remember I told you about the cops and the sanitation workers? That's a lot of tax dollars going to his side. The city does not prevent the other side from having its own parade. And not only having its own parade, uh, ARC can come to the parade and stand on the sidewalk and wave its banners and chant its slogans. And I'm sure that way take advantage of whatever publicity, including media coverage, is generated by the Rainbow Parade. So Mr. Thomas wins at the Human Rights Commission. But no, he doesn't win. He won. <laughs> no, you oh. what you have. ...experts and opinions on the First <laughs> Amendment, but what you've got here in the Human Rights Commission is somebody who's thinking about the well-being of this city. And uh, we also know... have the courts. Yeah, well, then that's where it'll have to be fought out. Because we know that as soon as you deny the parents the right to march in this parade, then the government becomes intrusive and begins to dictate uh, all kinds of positions on what the rights of human beings really are. 
And then we go around and around and around. Mr. Thomas cannot assume just to say you can't march in my parade. But her very argument is that the government is being intrusive by requiring her children to read these books. Will you support that argument as well? Well, wait a minute. I'm back at the chancellor's party. <laughs> as, a, as a human rights commissioner, she comes to you and says, this is a violation of my human rights for the government to force my children to read these books. I may have to agree. <laughs> oh, good. Well, the case goes to the courts. And we know one thing. It's going to take a long time before it is resolved. So ARC tries another tactic. ARC, not knowing whether it's going to be able to persuade anybody with book burning, whether it's going to be able to get this book out of the schools, whether it's going to be able to get its message and float into the parade, decides, well, we're going to write a book of our own. The ARC Writers Committee gets together and produces a book of its own called End of the Rainbow. <laughs> and this book lays out in a series of essays by different members of the committee all the reasons why the members of the Anti-Rainbow Coalition think the rainbow is the end of the world. That the rainbow is the end of our ability to teach our children the message we want to teach them, live in the neighborhoods we want to live in. We're going to have an enforced orthodoxy of multiculturalism thrust upon us. It's going to take away our own culture. We don't like it. And this is a series of essays by parents published as, as End of the Rainbow. Now, Ms. Fitzgerald, you've been promoted. Have I written this one too? <laughs> you've, you've been promoted to publisher. You don't have to write textbooks as a hack anymore. You're a publisher now. Uh, and in fact, you've become publisher at the company that publishes your own book, The Rainbow People. I'm from ARC. I come to you with the manuscript. It has the diametrically opposed view to The Rainbow People. And we come to you and you say, we say, publish us. You going to do it? Will it sell? <laughs> Very well in our neighborhood. I'll publish it. <laughs> you don't care that it is the opposite message from the one that you put Absolutely forth? Absolutely not. Book? No. Why, why not? I, I believe, uh, your book? I mean, insofar as morality might be concerned in this commercial, otherwise commercial decision, <laughs> um, I believe that, uh, that my publishing house ought to express all kinds of uh, viewpoints through, through its publications. We endorse none of them. They, um, uh, but uh, I think that's, that's a good thing. Marketplace of free ideas, they always call it. Mm -hmm. so that's us. The marketplace, marketplace. Of, <laughs> so the marketplace of ideas and the marketplace for books, you don't take sides, you'll publish anything. I'll publish it. All right. Well, The End of the Rainbow comes out, and you know what? Mr. Thomas was right. It may not have been the intent of the authors, and it may not be what everybody in ARC had in mind, but it turns out that end of the rainbow leads to violence. How do we know this? Well, there's been an epidemic of gay bashings and interracial assaults accompanied by racial epithets. Whites beating on blacks, blacks beating on whites using racial epithets. Straights bashing on gays using homophobic epithets. And you know what? Now that the book's been published in paperback, and it's easy to carry. It turns out that lots of the defendants brought into prison for these assaults 
have a copy of it in their back pocket. And they've underlined heavily under the lines, eliminate the rainbow people. Eliminate, I'm sorry, eliminate the rainbow message. They didn't write eliminate the rainbow people. They said eliminate the rainbow people message. <laughs> so we know that this book caused violence. This book is the handbook in the back pocket of these terrorists who are assaulting citizens of the city. Uh, and so, Mayor Safer, uh, the time has come, the time is, well, you may be, depending on what you answer to the question. Uh, the time has come maybe to round up these books that are causing all this violence, no. don't you think? No, Why no, not? no, because the, I don't care how many guys have copies in their back pockets underlined. Uh, they, uh, they're the kind of people that go beating people up. They don't need a book to send them to do it. The book is incidental uh, to, to this uh, uh, rash of abuses. Um, I'm the mayor. I'm not in the business of <coughs> banning books. I wish I hadn't hired that guy as chancellor, and ha I wish he hadn't commissioned that book, but uh, uh, it's not the mayor's job or anyone else's job. <coughs> Uh, because my first duty is the Constitution, as my counselor keeps reminding me, <laughs> so, uh, to, to ban books and tell people what they can read and they can't. I don't know how long you're going to last, Mayor Safer, but... <laughs> Not long, because his chancellor just quit. <laughs> 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 I talked with him last week about this stuff. <laughs> but he's moved you back to government by offering you the police commissioner's oh. job. <laughs> <laughs> commissioner Butts... We've got a problem in our city. We've got books being used as tools for mayhem and assaults and violence. Mr. Thomas can tell you all about it. And uh, don't you think it's time to start rounding up those books? No. Why it's not? time to start rounding up the people who commit the violence, not the books. Uh, as a police commissioner, I don't have a thing to do with the books that are published. What I have to do is to make sure that law and order resides in our city and um, that uh, anybody who violates law and order in our city is uh, arrested <coughs> and uh, brought before the bar of justice swiftly. Well, it sounds like you and the mayor are in agreement this time, but Mr. Thomas, you're not going to stop with these decisions, are you? Uh, how about some lawsuits? If the mayor and the police commissioner won't help, why not organize a group from the Rainbow People to sue the Francis Fitzgerald for uh -huh. money? Uh -huh. You've got a lot of hospital bills. The people that the Rainbow People members who've been beat up in the city have a lot of expenses from all this. Why not sue Francis Fitzgerald for putting that book on the street? That book is like a toolkit to violence. It says, eliminate the Rainbow message. That's not a responsible message. That's like putting a knife in their hands, isn't it? Why not sue for damages? What do you think? I'm trying to stay in role here. <laughs> You're the Rainbow People chairman, the chairman of the Rainbow People Coalition. That's right, that's right. Your people come to you, you say, look, I've got 24 stitches in my cheek. I, the guy who beat me up, the guy who cut my face, had the book in his back pocket. He had underlined, eliminate the rainbow message. He slashed me right across my face. I want you to sue the woman who put that book on the streets before it happens to someone else. Are you willing to take my case? I, I also happen to be, in addition to the chair of the Rainbow People, a lawyer. I'd say um, 
<laughs> First Amendment problems aside, there's a different, a very difficult causation problem, right? Um, yeah, how is one going to show right, that the reading or consumption of this book or the line in the book led the perpetrators of the violence to engage in acts I'll of violence? I'll tell you, I'll testify, I'll take the stand, I'll say the guy who slashed my face was holding the book in his left hand and the knife in his right. <laughs> there was no causation problem here. But did you see him reading? Because in view of the reading scores, <laughs> in view of the reading scores in this city, there's some doubt as to uh, causation. Right. So uh, suppose there's no causation problem. Is there a First Amendment problem? Well. It's only money, not jail. Miss Fitzgerald isn't going to go to jail. She's just going to have to share her profits with the victims of these books. Mm -hmm. That's not censorship, is it? She's a private citizen. Um, she has the right to make decisions to publish books of any kind. She's not the state. She may hold the functional equivalent of state power since these publishing conglomerates are pretty powerful. But I would have to counsel my people to seek their damages from the perpetrators of the violence and not from Ms. Fitzgerald, even though I know she has an enormously deep pocket <laughs> and I'd love to get at it. But c'est la vie. Huh? Sue your assailants, not the people who egg them on. Well, sounds like you're not going to help. Uh, I'm a member of the Rainbow People, Ms. Noonan, and I'm still recovering from my wounds. I heard how great you were on the other side. I heard how you helped ARC with its public relations campaign. I'm coming to you. What can I do to stop this book that I think is stirring up people to hurt people like me? What can I do to stop it? I can't sue her. I can't put her in jail. What can I do? Give me some good public relations tips. What are they feeding you at Harvard these days? <laughs> what a scenario. Um, look, look. It's okay if you take some time to think. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Any ideas? What can we do if we're angry at a book? What can we do if we think a book is preaching a message that hurts us? We can't put the publisher in jail. We can't round up the books. The mayor won't do it. The police commissioner won't do it. We can't uh, sue the publisher for money. How are we going to stop this book from being used as a tool for violence? What do you suggest we do? Write our own book? I have yeah. an idea. The Rainbow People, which takes us back to Ms. You can also talk to Bob Grant and Rush Limbaugh. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. So Mr. Hentoff, help us out. What, can we, what would you do if we got a spot on Rush Limbaugh? No, the point is that there are many outlets for views that would be very, very censorious, I use the term figuratively, uh, of the book, and it would create considerable uh, public antipathy toward it. You're not, you don't have to sue the publisher, but you can get your message out. There are plenty of places where you can do that. So we should just get a good public relations agent like Ms. Noonan and just get on the air, get on Rush Limbaugh, get on Oprah, get out there and show our stitches and preach to the world. Yeah, our rainbow mess. Fight bad speech with more speech, that's you your idea? It. Well, what we should do is go to the president and have him burn it on the White House lawn. Why not? <laughs> He'd Why do not? It. He might do it. Well, uh, 
Unless on reconsideration I've decided to sue. <laughs> How about it? You ready to sue? I'm ready to sue. Let's hear the claim. I'm ready to sue, and uh, the argument I'm going to make is that um, the First Amendment is not sacred. The interpretations of the First Amendment handed down by the Supreme Court over the years are uh, not sacred either. That um, there are countries all over the world, fully functioning democracies, in which uh, there is robust debate, uh, in which the publication of books such as that uh, published by Ms. Noonan and her group, which would constitute actionable actionable crimes. Great Britain, Sweden, Canada, Canada, Germany, Germany, Australia, great role model, New Zealand, Norway, China, Iran, Italy, Saudi Arabia, Italy, <laughs> fully, fully functioning democracies in which there is robust debate, robust debate which arguably is more vigorous, uh, wide-ranging, and pluralistic than what passes for political discourse in this country. And I would argue to the Supreme Court uh, that in light of these examples from other democracies, in light of Article 4 of the, the International Convention for on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination and the Principles that that embodies, which I think can be extended to this setting, uh, that the fetishism that allows us to say no free speech unless our current understanding of the First Amendment remains sacrosanct does not dignify our country. He's ready to sue. I'm Ms. ready Fitzgerald. to sue. You better get a lawyer. I'd suggest Ms. I Stratton. really need a lawyer now. <laughs> So, Ms. Johnson, let, let, let me just say that um, until uh, Mr. Thomas decided to sue, I was ready to um, just quietly remove all the books, just not publish too many more, because there was a terrific public outcry started by Mr. Hentoff um, that uh, made me terribly embarrassed. But now that someone's suing me, I'm going to have to stand right up there and um, and uh, and hire a lawyer. So, Ms. Strassen. Uh, I guess we at ARC uh, could have done, uh, I'm sorry, we at the Rainbow Peoples could have done better. I, we at the Rainbow Peoples could have done better if we asked her to take the book off the shelves, but we're suing now. You heard what our lawyer said. Don't we have a right to remove those books from the shelves, or are you going to try to stop us? You're trying to remove the books through suing the Author, I'm sure. sorry, I'm confused. We want now. damages. We want damages from your client, the publisher, for every injury caused by that book out there in the marketplace of ideas. Well, despite the uh, revisionist view of, of Mr. Thomas, the vision of the First Amendment in this country is uh, simply inconsistent with holding an author responsible for acts of violence that are uh, carried out by people who may have read the book. It was interesting. Uh, 
Nat Hentoff said that, well, if the book was in the left hand and the knife was in the right hand, and I was thinking, well, what if there's a cigarette in the left hand and a knife in the right hand? Maybe we should sue the tobacco manufacturers. You're going to have uh, a causal <laughs> relationship problem. And also, we cannot scapegoat free speech in this society. We cannot blame words for crimes that are committed by people. It's dangerous not only because it means that the Ms. Fitzgeralds of this world won't dare write anything or publish anything for fear that some crazy person will have that book in the hand or in the back pocket uh, while they commit a crime. I mean, given the number of uh, aberrant personalities, uh, it would be the most risk-averse behavior not to publish anything at all. And as to the argument that Mr. Thomas makes for reconsidering the First Amendment, uh, and he was reeling off that honor roll <laughs> of countries that we should aspire to emulate such great bastions of human rights where there is such great tolerance, and I mentioned a few of them myself. You mentioned uh, them, I, I was didn't. thinking, well, uh, let's take England, for example. Let's take Salman Rushdie, who is in hiding there. I think your vision of the First Amendment uh, would allow not only the lawsuits, but uh, perhaps the other forms of action that have been taken against him. Because the same kind of anger that has been aroused against the book we're talking about here is magnified a millionfold by the anger that he has caused to millions of people by offending their deep-seated religious beliefs. This, and I don't want us to blind, go down that road. But this blind defense of freedom of speech also uh, should include, therefore, the freedom to issue fatwas or some version or another of a fatwa, which is to eliminate the right. No, yeah, because we're getting back to, I, I think my, my brother, uh, free speech de de uh, defender here, mentioned that distinction earlier. If you're talking about actual incitement, a threat, which is intended to be carried out and likely to be carried out, that is not protected. Well, the likeliness of the threat being carried out, whether it's to life and limb or, or to simply embarrass or to abuse in other ways. So, I mean, what Nat is su suggesting that everything up to murder is okay. No, 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 no. Well, the, fa the, fat the, the fatwa says, kill this man on sight. A modified this fatwa. This afternoon, if you want to. A modified fatwa. Yeah. Something that approaches. No, what I was talking about was the Brandenburg decision by the Supreme Court in 1969, which said, look, you can incite to violence, you can advocate violence provided that you're not saying do it right then and there aren't people hanging around ready to do it. That's to me a pretty good description of, of the line between protected speech and not protected speech. So what is the book when the terrorist has it in his hand? Is it the fatwa or is it just an expression of an opinion? Eliminate the rainbow message, okay? Oh, Take but, but, but think, think of, the, of the marvelous uh, precedent you're setting because other crimes will be ascribed to other books and eventually you will have your own, pro uh, pro what, what are the Catholic, the Roman Church used to call it? That list of prohibited books. The index. Yeah, the index. Right. Well, Mr. Thomas, what do you say? They say there's a First Amendment problem here. You're going to withdraw the case? There may be a First Amendment problem, but I want to say uh, that there's no free speech problem. Um, if we follow the logic <laughs> of uh, the formidable team of Strosen and Hentoff. 
Uh, it seems to me that we gut a good portion of our existing criminal law. Uh, there are contexts in which words can result in arrest, indictment, prosecution, and conviction. Blackmail, extortion, conspiracy to restrain trade. Right. So this imminence requirement seems to me to be avoiding the problem altogether. Um, I thought when uh, the uh, police commissioner said uh, about the parade, we'll provide sufficient um, police protection so that your people uh, won't be harmed as a result of uh, Ms. Noonan's group. What about the day after? Uh, what about the day after that? Because surely I'll be just as mutilated, just as dead, when the attack occurs the day after or the day after, uh, the day after that. Uh, so uh, this investment in imminence, as though the imminence somehow tells us uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that there's a link between the word and the deed, right, strikes me as indefensible. Words do think. All right, but what would your rule be then? How, what words used in what context would you punish? Well, we're talking here about this context. Yeah. Right? Okay. Uh, and I'm arguing that in this context, I would argue for Ms. Fitzgerald, um, who I'm, I, might, I might say does have the right to publish, right? She simply has to, to pay, right, for the consequences right, of her incitements to violence. Now, what's, what's the key to this context? We, we've had escalating incidents. Is that key to this context? In East Germany, or what used to be East Germany, when neo-Nazi skinheads with swastikas and rap lyrics preached the message of genocide, the authorities rounded up the tapes, rounded up the records. What, what, what do we need in the, the climate, the context of violence, before we let government round up records or plaintiffs sue publishers? Well, the German, example, the German example suggests that we need some historical perspective. Right? Uh, and it would seem to me uh, that given the history of the Holocaust, right, uh, a concern with protecting the equality rights, we're talking about basic human dignity and physical integrity <laughs> of people at whom the skinhead message is directed warrants intervention. Why not the intervention that's warranted, it would seem to me, is to protect the people themselves from the attackers themselves. And the lesson I draw from history, sadly, is that Germany is repeating now some of the mistakes it made in the 1930s right. of going after books, going after music, but not providing actual <coughs> protection against actual physical attacks. Let's turn to that method last of all our series. We've talked about all the ways we could try to fight the message of violence and hate. We can put textbooks in classrooms trying to condition people to love, not hate. We can try to keep the haters out of the parade if we think they're haters and just have a parade that's the message of love. We can try to uh, stop them from burning their books by making a book burning a crime. We can try all these things, but there's one last thing the city of Utopia might try to do to stop haters. And it has to do with just what Ms. Strassen just described, going after the people who do hateful acts 
rather than the people who preach hateful words. So here's what Utopia City is going to do. We have a law against assault. If you assault somebody, you can go to prison for up to six months for a minor assault, longer if it's aggravated. Okay, but let's focus on minor assaults because nobody here got killed. We're just talking about stitches and broken bones. Six months for an assault in Utopia City, but the city council gets together now and says, if you assault somebody because you are motivated by racial <coughs> or other group-based hostility, that is, if you attack somebody because of his or her race or sexual orientation, you can go to jail for a year. Regular barroom brawl, six months. Racially motivated violence, bias crime, homophobic violence, a year. <coughs> now, I just assaulted somebody. Okay, I'm the defendant. I'm the criminal defendant here. I just beat up this guy because he was black. And I don't like blacks coming into my neighborhood. And I said so when I beat him up. I said, no niggers in my neighborhood. And I'm suddenly going to jail for a year when the guy down the block, the black guy down the block, who beat the same guy up last week, <laughs> got six months, right? Black guy beats this guy up six months. I beat him up. I go for a year. This is My where the uh, thought is being impaired. This is yeah. where the My law. This is where the law firm of Hantoff and Strassen comes to a parting of the ways. Absolutely. <laughs> because, because. Which one of you do I want as my lawyer, Mr. Hantoff? Oh, me, by, by all means. What, what you're describing, you? among other things, is a parody of equal protection under the law. If let me turn it around, because this is what most of the cases have been so far. A black guy beats up a white guy badly. The, the sentence is two years for the beating, but he gets double the sentence, and he could have gotten triple the sentence. The same guy, if he had beaten up a black guy, black on black, would have gotten just the two years. Is that equal protection under the law? What does it tell you about the value of the black victim as opposed to the value of the white victim? <coughs> the other part of that is the people who want to do that say they're going to send a message to the community that that, that, that assault against gays and blacks and, and women um, are going to get harsher sentences. That's the message. What's the message to all the other people who get mugged or otherwise assaulted by people who are blessedly free of prejudice? They're just greedy. They don't count nearly so much. The sentences are going to be vastly different. Well, hold, hold on a minute. Let me, Police Commissioner Butts. Could you please explain to Mr. Hentoff why Utopia City has this law? Why do you put racial beaters and bashers in jail, racist beaters and bashers in jail, for longer than regular beaters and bashers? What are you trying to do? As a police commissioner, the best answer that I can give you is because that's what the law says. Right. And I am here to uphold the law. Now, I, you know, as a private citizen, you know, I would have to say that the law is lousy. <laughs> because uh, it does not provide equal protection for all citizens. And while I am upset that somebody beats up someone else because they are black, because they are gay, because they are female, uh, I cannot prescribe that one beating is any worse than another. Just as I would say as a private citizen, if a police officer kills someone, 
unjustly in the eyes of whomever, that is just the same kind of punishment that should be received by somebody who kills a police officer. Mayor Safer, can you defend this law? It was enacted under your reign. Well, it got me elected, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean I believe it uh, or I believe in it. No, so nobody's defending this law. You got the right police commissioner, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't defend the law. And by the way, uh, uh, the city doesn't make these laws. Uh, I don't have any much influence one way or another. I can rail against it or for it, but uh, anything I say is only going to get me into trouble, uh, and uh, I leave that up to the state uh, Supreme Court to sort out, well, and ultimately, ultimately the, the, the Supreme Court. Well, uh, but, but um, in my heart, as the mayor of a city called a Rainbow or not, I do believe that if, if we are going to bring this city together, we have to have various ways of encouraging that to happen and discouraging the opposite from happening. Sure, so and why it's not important, send the message? Hold on a moment. Send it's an message. important political and moral message uh, from the pulpit of City Hall that the people who might be in jeopardy, whether they're, whether they're blacks or, or gays or women, that somewhere in this body politic there is someone in some group determined to defend them, to defend these minorities from uh, w whatever part of the majority is bent on hurting them. That is civic duty, I think it's called. Nothing to do with law, it's called duty. So you're willing to send a message by encouraging people to fulfill their civic duty by sending me to jail for twice as long for beating somebody up because of his race. Lady, three, me three times if I could. Three times, <laughs> two times. Now, what I'm concerned, now, Mr. Hentoff was talking about all these other, you know, the, the, the city isn't protecting other victims, but I'm concerned about my freedom of thought, my freedom of belief, my freedom of conscience. Aren't I allowed to believe that somebody's inferior because yes. of his race if I want to. Yes. You might not like it, but can I believe that? So why can't I express that through what I do? I'm willing to take my six months. I realize what I did was wrong, <laughs> but why should I have to take a year? Isn't that punishing me for my beliefs, my racism? I thought that was against the First Amendment. You can believe whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. You can join groups uh, that uh, share your racist beliefs. You may not commit discriminatory acts, including discriminatory criminal acts. And I'm shocked at the statements I hear around me. It seems to me that they're turning back the clock. I thought at least since 1964, we had a national commitment to the principle that certain acts that would not otherwise be illegal are illegal when they are committed on the basis of a discriminatory intent. I can believe in racial segregation. 
uh, I can, uh, but I cannot discriminate in terms of, if I'm a landlord, in terms of housing on the basis of race, although I can discriminate on all kinds of other bases that uh, are not involved with racial or other forms of invidious that discrimination. This is exactly the same thing. No, it is we not. may not discriminate in the basis of, of race or national origin or so forth in selecting victims for crimes. That causes a greater harm to society, especially a society that is striving, as the mayor says, to achieve some kind of harmony, uh, to put to, to repair the great breaches in our fabric. Mr. Hendricks, help me out. I'm this going is to jail. the this is the national ACLU argument that has been thoroughly refuted by three of the ACLU affiliates on the other side: Ohio, Vermont, and Florida. You talk about discrimination in housing or employment. I was a shop steward for a long time. We did not have to go into the head of the boss. It would be unpalatable anyway. We knew what, what, what was going on on the shop. We knew what the outside uh, capacity was in terms of employment of blacks and gays, etc. And so we sued and won. There are some times when you do have this interconnection, but even then, in, in, in employment discrimination and housing discrimination, these are civil fines or civil actions, and nobody gets double or triple the time. By it's that totally disproportionate. Matt, by that logic, you should have defended the right to bring the lawsuit against the publisher, because that was civil damages. Oh, come on. That's the vicarious responsibility which anybody with any knowledge of the First Amendment, and I know you believe that too, knows it's, it's impossible to do that. You can't blame people for what they publish. I mean, nobody has done that. All these cases have failed. Well, I'm you not see how desperate the National books. ACLU is? I'm not very good at writing books. I'm better at talking with my fists. Right, You're a performance artist. I was expressing myself when I beat up that guy. I, Billy Budd wasn't very articulate when he punched out mm -hmm. the captain. Yeah. He spoke with his fist. I spoke with my fist. I was speaking. I have a First Amendment right to say I don't like you. I'll take my six months. Why should I have to take my year? It's like the difference between uh, beating somebody up um, with your fists uh, or with a set of brass knuckles uh, and uh, using a gun to cause the same or substantially I, th I think the another same good analogy is the difference between um, a Billy Budd kind of situation, completely spontaneous, unintentional, versus premeditated, deliberate murder for hire. Our criminal law consistently and rightly distinguishes among different acts according to the kind of harm that they cause to society. And one of the uh, important criteria is different mental states with which those acts are carried out. Now, in this society, there is more harm that is caused not only to the immediate victim, when the victim knows that he was not just uh, targeted as a random act, but was selected on the basis of some characteristic that he can't change, that is going to cause him more harm. He's going to feel afraid to walk the city streets, or at least in be afraid to go into certain neighborhoods for fear of being attacked so on the of, basis if, of his race. If any of you here who are not part of these protected classes gets mugged, you're not going to feel nearly so bad because you've been guaranteed that by the ACLU. 
The national ACLU brief to the Supreme Court on this case, which is coming up this term, has a section that is just marvelous. It says, you know, the critics of this kind of, of statute believe that there are going to be difficulties <coughs> and dangers in enforcing it. We do, too. And then there's this plea to the Supreme Court. You can imagine the justices listening very carefully and getting out their ACLU policy book. This is a terrible law. And the ACLU National is for it only because it doesn't want to seem to be soft on, on violence well, against blacks and, and gays, et cetera. I, I, and the Equal I, Protection I, I, I Clause of the Constitution. No, the Equal Protection Clause goes the other way. Ms. I pointed Ms. that out. Ms. Fitzgerald. I've, I've stopped understanding this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and so I want to go back to basics here, right? Um, uh, <coughs> what? Supposing um, I am mugged by somebody uh, who happens to be of a different race, um, what will stop me from uh, accusing that person of uh, racially biased uh, mugging, it, when in fact it could be argued that all they wanted was my uh, wallet? Well, a as with any crime, there has to be evidence, and the mere fact that there is uh, cross-racial grouping is not sufficient evidence. Can I evidence. tell you what the evidence was in yeah. my case? I had this book in my back pocket, <laughs> and it was called End the Rainbow, and it was underlined, eliminate the rainbow message three times, and that was introduced into my case to give me the year rather than six months, but I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it with the Supreme Court of the United States. What we've done is we've started with something like flag burning, which is two years old in the Supreme Court, three years old in the Supreme Court, and we ended up with laws that discriminate between muggings that are based on one set of beliefs or muggings that are based on another set of beliefs. This spring, and by July 4th, the Supreme Court will decide whether there's a First Amendment right to beat somebody, not to beat somebody up, but not to be punished more for beating someone up for racial motivations than you would have been punished for beating somebody up just plain old garden variety bar, barroom brawl. The Supreme Court is going to decide whether that's freedom of thought or freedom of expression that's at stake. We'll stay tuned. Let's thank the panel for a vigorous <laughs> exchange and invite questions from the floor. like to make a comment and hopefully not insult anybody because if I insult everybody it'll be at least equally directed. <laughs> uh, I've been coming to these things for a number of times in the last couple of years and I always come because the people on the panel are people I've either read about, read their own words, heard, and admire. And it always bothers me to come and then see them reduced to being like school children jumping through hoops for these hypothetical arguments so instead of actually hearing you talk about actual issues that you think are important. I have to listen mm -hmm. to a hypothetical discussion where everybody's holding back. Nobody's really letting go. Finally, Nat did. Thank you. And uh, I mean, I really feel like it's, so it's what too academic. Wanna, what do you want to hear about? What do I want to hear Ask about? Ask questions. That I said I was going to make a comment, not a question, and that I was directing this to nobody in particular, and it was not racially <laughs> motivated. <and I'm laughs> And I, I guess I'm in the, the, the class that goes for a sort of uh, unfettered discussion, free for all, and Kathleen, Ms. Sullivan, you're here to prevent that, perhaps, but I, I think it's rather too managed, if that's my comment. Well, gee, we, we talked about 
why Chancellor Fernandez lost his job, <laughs> why Mayor Dinkins deliberately misunderstood the First Amendment implications of the St. Patrick's Day Parade, and then I think, and Nadine thinks too, even though we disagree, uh -huh. an extremely important issue, a real case coming before the Supreme Court, uh, Mitchell versus the state of Wisconsin. This wasn't by any means abstract. You shouldn't go to law school because this is the way we conduct all discussions in law schools. <laughs> um, I had a question, um, I guess maybe to Nat, but um, you said it, we're in the in the First Amendment. It just says we have a right to assemble. I don't remember the the wording of it right now. But um, wh why can't um, I, I mean? And I kind of agree with the way you interpret it, except for it seems to me that the freedom to assemble doesn't say that you have the the right to tell somebody not to assemble with you. Freedom of assembly is pointedly part of the First Amendment. So it, it means or has been interpreted through the years as saying that when you assemble, whether you're three or 300, you have the First Amendment right to express your ideas. If the state, which in this case gives you a license to have a parade, says, no, you can't express your ideas fully, you're going to have to have the opposition right in there with you, then that is a diminution and I think a violation of the First Amendment. But, but from the wording itself, when it just says you have the freedom to assemble. Oh, look, the, there are only 36 words in the First Amendment, and there's a publication that comes out every week with 120 pages interpreting it. I think <laughs> one, one thing that might put it, um, a helpful gloss on it, the First Amendment also talks about uh, the freedom of speech. It doesn't talk about the freedom not to speak, yeah. and yet the court correctly has said uh, that just as you are free to affirmatively express yourself, the government cannot force you to carry a message that you don't want to carry. This is the counterpart of that. The government would be forcing you uh, to convey a message that is contrary to your beliefs by forcing you to include in your group those that have contrary ideas. But, but well, Nat, okay, the but issue, excuse me one second, it's in response to the question, uh, that, it, that this was most recently resolved was the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Yeah. <clears throat> and it isn't as clearly defined uh, in this case. It wasn't inviting a group diametrically opposed to the ancient order of Hibernians, not at all. Uh, these people were as Hibernian as anybody. Uh, they had an ideology. It was it, they they had a, an ideology, if you want to call it that, but they were rejected, or the Hibernians were trying to reject them on the grounds that they were committers of mortal sin, which was okay with them because not, not all Hibernians, in, <laughs> including Peggy, Peggy Noonan, are, are not committers of mortal sin but that they wanted to proclaim that they were committers of mortal sin, in the words of the Hibernians. Oh, yeah, and that, that, in fact, they were marching not as the Irish lesbian and gay organization, but as the Irish Sodomites. <laughs> there, were, uh, there were a number of arguments proposed that were dead wrong. The Cardinal said it was a religious parade. It is not a religious parade. The basic difference was that the, 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 the gay and lesbian organization wanted to march as themselves, and no, they should, but, but not the parade, in that parade. Isn't the, what do you mean it's not a religious parade? It's any kind of parade I say, want to say my parade is. 
You can't tell the me. Yeah, but when you go to court, you're not, you, you can call it what you want, but the judge is not going to say it violates the Establishment Clause. It's well, I believe say, the judge's name was judge Duffy, did. so the fix was it. Is there any other panelist who wants to say anything about anything? <laughs> anything about the anything that was left out of the discussion or anything you wanted to bridle against that was too managed? Anybody from the panel before we take the next question wants to talk about anything? Well, Anybody? you know, whoever sets the climate in terms of a city or a nation has a lot to do with the uh, enforcement or non-enforcement of the laws regarding almost anything but especially the First Amendment because it, 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 it has to do with how much the law can, can be or will be enforced. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the mayor and the police commissioner uh, have a lot to, uh, to do with even though the First Amendment gives you all kinds of rights and privileges, you can maneuver politically to uh, circumvent any of them. And uh, one of the things I think that was not given enough attention was, you know, what the mayor really can or cannot do, or the president can or cannot do with an attorney general, with a police commissioner, or with a corporation council. So I'd, um, I'm concerned because, um, for instance, Fernandez, uh, decided to take a position, and it would seem as if the mayor was with him, even though Fernandez lost and the mayor's still the mayor, <laughs> at least for a while. Um, but uh, they take these positions not based on uh, First Amendment arguments, it seems to me, but on what's going to happen politically. And uh, that's troubling for me, because the political party or political position one way or another can uh, certainly um, make a difference in terms of how one looks at First Amendment. I mean, Ronald Reagan was, I mean, was a man who allowed for, uh, in my own view, a kind of reintroduction uh, into our uh, society of a kind of blatant disregard for other people in terms of what people were allowed to say. I mean, a growth of uh, a kind of ugly meanness uh, in our society that we thought we had gotten rid of. But the First Amendment allows for it, and it, whoever sets the climate can either cause it to rise up or cause it to go down but by enforcement and public posture. But there's one other dimension for all my criticism of the ACLU in this case. Uh, one of the key factors in New York City, with all the political posturing of the mayor and Giuliani and all those people, is that the New York Civil Liberties Union, led by Norman Siegel, keeps them honest. They don't want to be kept honest, and they act as if they didn't want to be kept honest, but he know, they know he'll, he'll go to court and they'll win in a lot of these cases. The gentleman at the mic. Uh, first, I would like to thank Penn and the members of the panel for a very informative <laughs> what about my rights as a contributor to ASH <laughs> Action on Smoking and Health? Yeah. And for many non-smokers in here, when we see members of the panel violating the law. <laughs> You're both uh, very clever. Counselor? <laughs> I am the law, safer. <laughs> Nolo contendere. 
Is there a question from this mic? Yes. Um, Mr. Hentoff, I believe you were the one who talked about the timing <coughs> inciting uh, toward violence. If it's imminent, it's a crime. If it's not imminent, it's not a crime. Uh, therefore, we can let the skinheads do what they want to do because it's not tomorrow. No, you, you punish them when they, when they commit the violence, okay. and before as well. I mean, the, the cases that have been publicized, like the ones in Denver, the ones in, in, in Oregon, their threat to commit violence was imminent, and there were people there to, to, to do it. Okay, but supposing they're just propagandizing, doesn't it also fall unto, under um, conspiring to commit violence at Cons some... Conspiracy is, al is almost as bad as RICO. It is so amorphous, it is so difficult to defend yourself against any kind of conspiracy statute. For example, you don't have to have ever met the other people in the so-called conspiracy. I, I stay away from that law as, as much as I can. In other words, we can allow these things to accumulate got, over it, a period of years. I mean, it sounds corny and all that, but speech that is repellent, that can be dangerous, is protected until it crosses a line. If you don't do that, then you've got government, and it can differ. Uh, I mean, as Reverend Butt says, it, it can differ in the city, it can differ in the state, that can decide to shut up all kinds of people they don't like, left, right, or whatever. You have to endure a certain amount of bad speech. But once it crosses the line, you land on those people. Uh, to give you a concrete example of um, how before our law changed to demand that there be a clear and present danger or imminent incitement on the theory that conspiracy among people discussing dangerous ideas might ultimately lead to harm, that was used to prevent teaching of Marxist doctrine in universities on precisely the theory that this could lead to a conspiracy which could ultimately lead to the overthrow of the United States government. So I think if you have that kind of example in mind, you understand uh, why those of us who think that was a wrong way to go uh, have that view. But it also bears uh, remarking that um, one could make a very strong case for the proposition that in point of fact, uh, the protections of the First Amendment uh, invented by the Supreme Court have, in point of fact, had uh, very little influence in either stopping or slowing government repression when the government in question is bent upon suppressing points of view uh, that it doesn't like. Gee, I would, uh, I would suggest people look at Brandeis not only in dissent, but in, in, uh, in, in the majority. I look at the Warren Court decisions, William O. Douglas, William Brennan, uh, there's been a lot of falling, there, were a lot, there was a lot of falling back, but it wasn't all bad. First Amendment is real. Gentleman at the mic. Yes. Uh, I'm a lawyer, uh, although I have to admit I don't practice in the First Amendment area. And uh, although my, my I believe very strongly in, in an absolutist position on the First Amendment, but I'd like to refer back earlier in the discussion to Mr. Thomas's comment with respect to some of the European countries which have laws on the books that allow civil actions whenever certain types of speech are, are spoken. And I want to refer specifically to the case of Holland, which I, from all reports, tends to be a fairly liberal and a fairly tolerant society, uh, in spite of the fact that there's a law on the books that allows 
for civil actions whenever speech is made which impugns somebody's personal dignity. For example, the use of the word nigger in an uh, unsavory context would allow the, the individual who had been the victim of that speech to file a lawsuit against the person who had used it. Now, I understand the legal arguments on behalf of the First Amendment, but what I'd like to hear is a good principled argument, not only from a legal standpoint, but also from a moral standpoint, why a law such as that would not be a good law to have in this country. One of the reasons is that it is always useful to know who the bigot is and why the bigot is saying what he's saying insofar as you can parse that language, which you sometimes can't. The principle is the more open the language, however horrific, the more knowledgeable the people are who watch that language and can counter it. If you start suppressing language because nigger is used or kike or whatever, what you're doing is putting those people underground where they thrive, and you also make martyrs out of them to some people, because my God, look, the government pushed them under there. They must be powerful people. Openness is the key. Well, we're, we're not really talking about a government act here. We're talking about the right of civil action. Where does, where, where does civil action go but through the courts? That's part, of, that's, part, that's part of government action. But it's the act of a private litigant, and yeah. it's not the it, act But it also was, in, in you say you're not a, a, a First Amendment lawyer, but uh, you may not be aware of this. In, a, in one of the most famous uh, and important free speech cases, New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964, that was a civil action uh, for libel damages. And the Supreme Court said it still has enormous adverse impacts uh, in terms of the First Amendment because by the government empowering the individual to invoke the mechanism that leads to recovery of enormous damages, far more, I think it was a thousand times, what the fine would have been in a criminal libel action, the actual deterrent impact on speaking is even greater than in a criminal action, and that's what we're trying to protect against. We don't want to deter people from expressing ideas, writing books that might expose them to enormous damages. That actually hurts enough that it would stop them from expressing their, themselves. We're well, that get, is if we're going to get through all the yeah. questions, we've got to keep moving. No, I think we won't be able to get any, through any more than the people who are already standing, but to try to get to those five people, can we move on? Thank you. The gentleman over there. Um, I'm not a lawyer of any sort, um, and my, I'm probably more interested in these issues than I am familiar, um, but I was, believe it or not, flipping through the Harvard Law Review the other day, um, <laughs> and saw an article um, about street hassling of women. I, I don't want to mi misrepresent the author's views because, uh, again, I didn't read the article thoroughly, but I, it seemed to me that she was referring to the concept of equal protection and of equal access to public accommodation. And I'd like to use this in reference to the idea of hate crimes. Is it possible that when one commits a that we live in a society that does not provide equal access to gays and lesbians, people of color, women, and that when one commits a hate crime, when one bashes someone because of any of those issues, they're not only committing violence, they're also creating an atmosphere in a society that denies equal access to public accommodation because 
the fear that one will be bashed, the fear that one will be raped, prevents one from being in public. And that in reality, that person is committing two crimes. And the, the punishment for committing that second crime is double or triple the sentence. I, I don't have a specific question, except I, I wanted to throw that out and hear from you folks about that. You know, aside from the arguments I tried to make, one of the problems with that kind of law, and the, and the intentions are admirable. You want, to, you want to indeed protect gays and other vulnerable peoples in the society. That kind of law boomerangs, because you're going to find, if the Supreme Court goes ahead with this, that as of now, as a matter of fact, the majority of those cases are black on white crime because that's what the police bias officers around the country, that's what the judges are looking for. So the ACLU is going to wind up under the perfectly sincere attempt to protect minorities to make life a lot worse for them. I find this rhetorical move the slippage from constitutional argument to arguments about the racism or the homophobic character of the practical administration of these laws uh, quite troubling. Uh, it seems to me uh, that the question of racist or misogynist uh, or homophobic administration of civility codes, restrictions uh, of the kind we, that, that were raised in the Wisconsin case and the like can be dealt with when those problems arise. But it, it seems to me that one could always trot out uh, arguments about the racism or misogyny or homophobic character of the administration of a law to defeat an otherwise sound argument in favor of that law. So that argument for me simply does not wash. Quick reply. I just want to say one Quick. thing. Over the past year and a half, I've done a survey of those poor souls in police departments around the country who are called bias officers. Most of the time, they haven't a clue as to what a bias crime is because it, the, the wording in the various states it's so vague and overbroad. I'm telling you, if this thing goes, it's going to be a disaster. Question from this mic. I'm curious about your opinion um, on a case that happened a few years ago at Brown University where a student was expelled for um, yelling racial epithets. And at the time, there was a lot of argument that that was um, a violation of his First Amendment rights to, to speech. So I'm curious about your opinion. To whom that. would you like to address the question? Um, he didn't literally. Hasn't spoken. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. I didn't hear it. Yeah. It was about the Brown, the Brown case. Well, Nadine, why Oh, we were deeply involved in the President case. So. President Gregorian. Matt, let, let Nadine take this oh, one. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> it's one we agree on. <laughs> Although Gregorian has a very different point of view. First of all, the student has no First Amendment rights, literally, because Brown is a private university and many people are shocked to learn, therefore students don't have any First Amendment rights. But uh, if it had been a public university, um, the president argued that it still wouldn't violate free speech rights uh, because he said the student was being punished not for the ideas that he uh, uttered, conveyed, namely racist and anti-Semitic ideas, but for causing a disturbance late at night in a residential area of the university. The problem with that argument was this was the first time 
in the history of Brown University that a student had ever been expelled. Uh, we find it very hard to believe it was the first time a student had acted in a rowdy fashion uh, late at night <laughs> in a residential area, and I think the uh, evidence is quite strong that he was, in fact, punished for the ideas that he conveyed, and therefore, had there been, uh, had it been a, a public university, it would have violated his First Amendment rights. I'm interested to hear from anybody else. Well, one would think that uh, the right to scream and yell in a university context was uh, the only interest in question. I'll leave aside the public-private matter, but it seems to me that there are countervailing uh, interests, uh, most notably the right of the students who belong to the group uh, that was a target of the epithets to uh, educational equality. Uh, and I think however one ends up striking the balance, uh, it is important that we understand that there are indeed competing interests that have to be reckoned into uh, a decision about whether or not to publish a particular student. What, what's going to be the right of, of, of the black students or the Latino students to scream and yell uh, epithets of the same kind about the group from which the offending student came? Surely not. Um, we're talking about power relationships in the context of the university. We're talking about protections uh, that were derived for uh, rational discussion, right? Being extended to uh, expressions whose conceptual content, it seems to me, was uh, far less important than the symbolic violence with which those ideas were expressed. But again, just a footnote, I knew Malcolm X pretty well, and, and he used to talk about the need to demystify language. He was talking about black kids, black students, and how important it was from his point of view that they not seek protection from these epithets, that they learn how to deal with them with language of their own, with better language, and with better intelligence. And I, I think the protection aspect of it simply means that you don't learn, you don't learn how to cope. And that's terribly important as a part of education. But I agree, I, agree, I agree with the professor in one thing. I think the colleges and universities, because there are, there, there are sensibilities to be concerned with, the education part that they do is absurdly ineffectual. They think that by putting out speech codes, they've solved the problem. They've only begun. But Nat, there's, another, there, there's a difference. And it may have very little to do with the law, but it has a great deal to do with history. Yeah. And the relationship in this country between racial epithets and uh, lynchings are so close that you cannot sit on your little tower and rule that with better language and better education, uh, you're going to somehow give the weak, make the weaker stronger and the stronger weaker. I mean, it's how, are you gonna, how are you going to make the weak strong if it, you protect them? But listen, law is wonderful, except when, they, when it ignores law. history. I'm not talking about law. And the relationship between the kind of language we've been talking about tonight <clears throat> and murder, often on a grand scale. On a college it, campus? No, in this country. These are, these are laws generally speaking, that apply to this country. You've got, this you've got white bigots and on Providence, on, Rhode Island. You've got white bigots on every campus. It's something universities should do something about, but they don't. It's not and about protecting the sensibilities of students of color. It's about preserving the integrity of the educational environment. Sure. If a student uh, is allowed to engage in the kinds of behavior um, 
that the student at Brown engaged in. One has the functional equivalent, it seems to me, of a kind of verbal or symbolic terrorism in the institution of the university. Its effects are wide-ranging uh, and cause all sorts of damage uh, to the very possibility right, of being able to respond. We're talking incommensurable language games, if I wanted to use a fancy theoretical phrase. That is to say, um, one side is engaging in rational discussion or trying to do that, and the other is engaged in the functional equivalent of the primal scream. I don't think we can shut our eyes uh, to those then very the, real imbalances then and, then and the power the, relations that the, they represent. The brown student, wait a minute, the brown student, do you, do, do, do you educate him by expelling him? Peggy Noonan, you know, I'll tell you, what I'm thinking of as I hear this is uh, you either believe in free speech or you don't. If you believe in it, you got to realize it's not free. You're going to pay a price for it. What is the price we all pay every day for free speech? We all hear things we disagree with, stupid things, obnoxious things, hurtful things, vaguely threatening things. It's the price you pay for freedom. Freedom's good. Not at my university. <laughs> well, that's not so good. Well, no, because I'm in, you know, in, in loco parentis, among other things. And um, furthermore, um, I don't believe that's, that's how you run an educational institution. This is not, you know, this is not about the law. It's about what happens inside an educational institution. We're going to have to close it. I'm going to have to invite the standing speakers to come on up. We're going to have to get out so I can get you to the coat check in time. I want to thank the panel. I had promised to let you out of the room by 10. Thanks to the panel. Yes. <laughs>